right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, Christianity America podcast. Uh, we got a special guest today. As you know, we got uh, Chet, our co-host today. How you doing, Chet? Hello, everybody. All right. So we have Terry Hernan with the Arizona Mule Deer Organization, a very special guest. We've known him for a long time. How you doing, Terry? Doing great. You guys are looking spiffy. Well, we are. You know, we're you know, sporting this uh, MDO gear, and it's pretty cool. You know, it's kind of hard for us not to wear our CHA stuff, but it's always uh, an honor and privilege. So, yeah, yeah, you look good in either one of them. To me, that's that works. That is true. So, um, today's a, a pretty good day. This is a, a fellow organization, a nonprofit here in Arizona who does incredible work. And um, it's funny, even before I even kind of got involved in a lot of the, the nonprofits and hunting organizations and conservation. I think there was one organization that kind of, you know, growing up, I think I graduated high school in 1992. Youngster. A youngster. And I think you had a camp that actually started back in 1992? 92 was our uh, unit 2223 camp right behind Pumpkin Center. And it's been there forever. So my wife and I started it because I felt like I wasn't doing enough to keep the uh, hunting heritage, which I didn't know what that means uh, at the time or meant at the time, but hunting heritage thing going. So we threw out a couple thousand bucks every year that we didn't really have to spend, but <clears throat> started out with a couple kids and ended up being uh, this year. You've seen the camp, you've seen how it worked out. So it's grown uh, immensely since then. And uh, what the really cool part is I've actually mentored some kids back when they were 10 and 12, and now they're mentoring kids in my camp. So it's this kind of makes you feel pretty proud to see that thing come full circle like that no that is for sure because i know uh chris you know cha was at your camp uh, this year by roosevelt lake you know, 22 and 23 and it was i think i saw probably 18 20 kids there you know coming and going and uh i think i saw three different arizona game and fish officers that showed up yep. a couple of them were there basically dark to dark helping and taking kids out yep. you also had a, a rancher that's a third Terry, or fourth Terry generation yeah. yep she was a third or fourth generation rancher and she was there to basically speak and talk about what the great relationship and partnership Mm-hmm. that you guys do which was really impressive so. and you had the mogion sports uh, association up there too that they helped us out they partner with us with the camp now and uh actually uh, jared mcfarland was one of the guys you met at the camp that was a wildlife manager he's actually a supervisor up there now when i first came in there it was his first year with the department and as we've been buddies ever since and i always tease with him i said you, you had all dark hair back then and i had hair so now it's like it's all changed but you know it's always fun to get those people that uh, that want to follow you through and also grow with you and uh it's been a it's been a really cool opportunity to have that camp and all the people invited and join us and all the kids that done well in it no nope, that is for sure and i think when we think about organizations and, and, and the impact and the legacy i mean i think uh, mdo is uh shows that you know based on your hard work i mean we're in the 29th year that this year will be the 29th year just from that first camp yeah and as you said i met the actually not really a young man but he was out there mentoring kids i mean i remember you told a story mm-hmm. on that night at dinner and of course you know incredible uh, i think that was the night of uh carne asada and burritos and yeah. i mean it was just incredible food i mean i remember i had to go back for seconds but I remember you getting up in front of everybody and, and calling him out and saying, you know, at one point he was here at, you know, as a youngster and now he's taking kids out and then uh, he's actually bringing kids in with their first harvest. It was pretty cool. So Connor Griner, that's who he was. Yeah. Yep. And exactly. And I think that kind of represents of why MDO needs volunteers. I mean, that is the, the main thing with uh, MDO is you pride yourself on relationships and volunteers and you want to talk about why volunteers are so important too well if, if any, anybody believes in a nonprofit organization that a volunteer doesn't uh, actually run the organization they're they're crazy um yeah there's a lot of thought patterns behind it but without volunteers that's your heart soul lungs spine skeletal i mean it's it's the body of the organization 
without volunteers, obviously you couldn't do anything. And volunteers can be people who come out and spend time on a project. Volunteers can be somebody at a youth camp. Volunteers could be people actually come to your banquet and spend money so you can actually take that money and do the things with the other volunteers. You know, everybody's different. And without that, that complete pie, you can't get anything done. So it's very, very important that you have a whole group of different volunteers, not so much that people just you know, give their hours to you, but the people who come and spend their money with you, they are volunteers as well. And, you know, like I tell everybody, you, you know, there's no such thing as firing a volunteer. And I've heard that in the past by some other organizations, and it just stunned my mind because I don't know how that can be done. But uh, we have some of the best volunteers in the state, I think. And, uh, you know, now we're getting closer and getting more involved with the Christian Hunters and um, a few other folks out here. And, and, and the more you partner with these other groups, the stronger your um, your ability to get things done is. And, um you know, you just got to, everybody needs to put their, their hats on the table when they come together and do things. And uh, it's not like I take this glory. It's more like we take, we all take this glory for all the good things we've done. And if we all can do that and continue doing what we do, this, this whole thing we call conservation and hunter heritage will always grow. Mike and I have talked about that along with other members in CHA about that very topic that, all the infighting doesn't get us anywhere. Um, we're not here to make ourselves look better. We're not here to to do anything other than obviously grow animal populations yeah. and, and better people. That's part of our primary mission as well for CHA is um, being faith-based, but it doesn't get us anywhere if we don't all get along. That's but a fact. Without getting too far along, Terry, um, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in Arizona Mule Deer Organization? Well, I was uh, actually uh, working for Cabela's after working with Allied Sigma for 20, almost 22 years over there. And then they walked everybody out of the building and took to Mexico and Czechoslovakia. So we, we all scrambled for another job, signed up in Cabela's. And then I started working with uh, Jim Solomon over there. And Jim actually introduced me to uh, one of the, uh, he was like the head region guy for the, Arizona, or the Mule Deer Foundation at the time and that's based out of utah so i was somehow or another i ended up going to utah and, and uh, applying for the job and they hired me and we was with them for almost six years and it was a good opportunity for me i just felt like the money that we were making for arizona should stay more in arizona so what happened then is me and another gentleman decided we we're going to go ahead and, and um, join together and become arizona mule deer organization so we've Done all the paperwork and got things going, and that's how we are here today. And um, we now have a very solid board, um, and we're growing every every time we turn around, which is great. Um, it's like you said, the, uh, the the hard part is trying to deal with people trying to chop your legs out from underneath here, from left and right. But every time they do that, I just grow a stronger pair of legs, and we keep on going. So right. <laughs> that's all you can do: adapt and overcome. That's it. That's it. I mean, that's what we have to do in this world. I mean, every day it's a challenge anymore. But you know, it's, it was a, a great opportunity to get this thing going, and it was well received by the people in the state because you know, when you're sending the kind of money we were making to the Mule Deer Foundation, that would go to Wyoming, Utah, Oregon, or someplace else, that wasn't helping our mule deer at all. And right. So we felt like if we were to do as good, and we haven't done as good yet, but we're doing that as good, um, that these the things we can do uh, is going to help the mule deer. It's also going to help the kids get more involved with what we do. And we're, we're mule deer first, but we're kids right there next to them. 
is Mule Deer Foundation where you started your conservation kind of career? Well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, I started a long time ago. I think I was, what was I, 31 or 32 years old. I'm 62 this year, so I'm getting old. But um, 32 years old, so that's when I started wondering how I could do more for what I love to do, which was hunting at the time. And uh, so we started doing some stuff, checking water catchments and things, something that just wasn't, I mean, we had no idea there was a game and fish department that actually had a uh, department like that. But we'd go ahead and check water catchments, clean them out and stuff like that, me and two or three other guys. And, and we started understanding what it was like to try to help instead of just take, right. actually give him back. And uh, we really uh, had no fundamental thought pattern about what it was called or what it was, but we knew we were doing something good. So as time went on, I understood what it was that we were doing. And uh, once we started with the camps, I understood, started knowing some of the wildlife managers, then I understood what conservation truly was. And you can't, I don't know. I mean, me as a person with a degree in business, I don't know anything what a biologist would know. But when you're around them all the time, you start picking up all the stuff that they tell you and you try to, you know, run with it. And there are some things that completely changes your mind when you talk to them because you think in your common sense world that this is going to work the way it should but if you take away this and me hurt something else so right. it's something i had to learn um and uh, you know i'm nowhere near what i should be as a conservationist I'm, I'm trying to get there but i think every year we get better at it when did when did uh arizona mule deer organization start when did you begin that 2017 I, I left the MDF and it was right after that that we started uh, working on paperwork so it was uh, basically 2017 we started okay what type of like you were saying all of us try to do our part mm -hmm. we've been a part of mending fences we've been a part of water catchments we try to pair with national forest or game mm -hmm. and fish or other organizations like yourself what other conservation related projects are you guys affiliated with or what do you have going on right now well we right now we've got some you know water stuff we're doing especially uh december 5th we have a project that's going to be up in 24b uh lynn martin's a rancher up there and of course that's fire just destroyed a lot of things up there on her ranch she's a good rancher she tries real hard to help wildlife just as much as she does cattle same as terry klein the rancher that was up in uh, tonnel basin mm -hmm. that mike met um, so <clears throat> December 5th, we're actually going to take pipeline into the wilderness area and put about four different troughs in there where the water hasn't ever been before. Those are huge because then it disperses the wildlife and, and, uh, you know, we are predators as hunters and ourselves. Well, what do we do? We set water holes when, you know, the water starts having a hard time. So here comes a deer and we shoot them. Well, mountain lions love to sit on water holes, you know, and, and if there's concentrated like it is, they eat pretty well. But if we can get water holes out there about every three miles away from each other, they have to take a pretty good guess on which one they're going to hit that day to find that easy deer. So, you know, water is huge. Um, there's nothing we can do about growing grass. So that's the thing that's really scary about all this. We can put millions of gallons of water into water catchments, fix every water catchment in the state. And, of course, they need water more than they do food. But without the food, sooner or later, they're going to start dwindling. And, uh, you know, the only thing we can do with that is just hope and pray that the, uh, the rain gods come along and throw some water on the ground and throw some snow on the ground. But, you know, we've done major projects up on, uh, you know, grassland improvements and things like Sycamore uh, Mesa. And, uh, we did a huge water project up on uh, Cook's Mesa with the 52 Ranch uh, over there in the uh, unit 21 it was huge those f those folks put a ton of money into that stuff and they look at things everything with water is uh, wildlife and also um, you know the bovine side of life but 
but then when there's the small stuff, it's like Unit 23 North has probably 55 little catchments up there that needs to maintain at all times. That's something we're planning on doing after spring uh, once it gets a little bit warmer so people don't freeze to death overnight. But, you know, hopefully you guys can get together with us on that. When we have a huge family weekend. We go up and we do these things and have a good time doing it. Uh, it's not any kind of pressure. There's not a ton of money involved with it, but there's a lot of uh, volunteer hours with it. Those will actually help more than building a new mud tank because, you know, you have these all over the place. Right. Um, a mud tank, you come in and it's one spot. And this one, you get all this water and it helps you out quite a bit. Um, we have water trailers. We have uh, three water trailers, uh, 525 gallon trailers we take out. And uh, we decided to buy a new trailer instead of fixing a, a tank because the water we put in 20 different water holes is better than building one water tank so you know the the, the board looks at all that stuff and my, my each one of my regions we have six regions just like arizona gaming fish regions are set up that way and now we have another region in region five south so they want to look further down south but when we get together they they literally keep 50 percent of all the money they make in the banquets and 100 percent of anything they make after that so when they start making their money they they get together and they, i tell them they got to do two things basically it's either have to help conservation or kids there's only two things you can do. So they get together and they decide that they want a water trailer or if they want to do a water catchment or what they want to do. And, you know, that money's theirs and they make their own decisions how to make it happen. And that's really the biggest thing because now it disperses the whole state and we, we're helping the whole state and whatever we do. So, you know, we've done a lot of different things, but water has been the big thing. We've been mostly a lot of fence removals too. Yep. Then uh, speaking of the youth camps, I think you have a youth camp in almost every region too. You know, you're in, you're out too. Yeah, and, we're, we're busy. Um, we had five of them in October, uh, deer camps, and then we have one in the Unit 42 coming up, 19, 20, 21st up there. So if anybody wants to come and volunteer with that, we'd love to have you. Um, we can have you in camp, just hang out and, you know, look good, or you can go out and look for a deer for the critter and for the kids, you know. But uh, whatever one you do, we'd love to have you there at camp with us. Where is that located for any of our listeners? It's going to be um, off of Vulture Mine Road. You go to the Vulture Peak Road and take a left, and it's about a mile in, and that's where we're at. And if anybody's interested, you can get a hold of me at uh, on my Facebook, or you can get a hold of me at uh, at uh, my phone number, 623-696-5579, or terry at azmuledeer.org, and I'll get you the information with that. Or you can go to the Arizona Game and Fish Regulations and go to the Mentored Camps, and you can pull up, I think they have, oh gosh, I can't remember how many they have this year, but there's a ton of them in there. But we're in there, too, on that one. How else um, do you guys at AZMDO um, assist mule deer? And um, does that help other, like you were talking about, all the catchment takes or the water, water tanks? It's kind of symbiotic in the sense that everything that the cattle do, they want to pair with, partner with other mm-hmm. hunting organizations because we're looking at it from a standpoint of, Plenty of those animals in Arizona, with it being especially a dry year this year, they're going to go into those stock tanks and, and get drinks. Mm-hmm. And it's beneficial to those ranchers because we're helping them fix those, but it's also beneficial to us. What um, what else are other organizations or you guys doing that are going to be else assisting mule deer, and how does that help other animal species? Well, what we usually tell folks is when we do anything with water, it helps the bees all the way to the birds. And bottom line is, um, you know, we're, we're lacking in bees now because we had the Africanized bees come in. Obviously, a lot of them are getting killed left and right because of that. So every time you put water, the first thing you see show up the water is your bees. And then you see the guys set up their, you know, bee boxes not too far away from that so they can actually make the honey, whatever they do. But without bees, we can't pollinate. Without pollination, we can't grow what needs to be grown on the ground and in the trees. 
Um, eagles, obviously, are the biggest thing. People love to see the big golden eagles out there and the, and the bald eagles. But anything that I, I think crawls or flies or walks, basically water is going to help out. So I think it's a whole gauntlet right there. And if you think for one second that uh, a mule deer is going to care whether or not a, a whitetail, whose whitetail walks in there or an elk walks in, they just don't care. I mean, the funny thing, we had a guy one time in an HPC meeting say that he didn't want to put a water catchment too close to the New Mexico border because you know, the Mex New Mexico deer would come over and drink the water. And, uh, you know, I was sitting there biting my tongue as hard as I could, and I says, uh, well, so... New Mexico deer know they're in New Mexico, you know? <laughs> but uh, you know this, this is the kind of stuff that you you know you hear sometimes. The you know I understand people want to keep everything in Arizona. They don't want to water everything, but the deer don't care where they're at. They right. don't know if they're in twenty B or twenty one or forty two. They just know they're walking around. They're a deer and they're trying to make it. You know, right? They're just trying to get to a unit with no pressure. Right. So any of the water stuff we do really helps out. The the big things we that people don't quite grasp is that all these fence lines we have over the national forest we've taken down i don't know how many miles of fence line we've got three fence remover you know those things are scary if you never ran one of those before but uh you know take that down because wildlife gets hooked up in that stuff you'll see a dead deer hanging there and you know they've went through a terrible death um you know i've seen coyotes chase fawns into the corner of a fence line and then they get them there so if you take all that stuff for this you know they don't realize is they're out of the way then they can get away a little bit easier so fence lines is huge uh, a lot of the national forest guys are getting rid of a lot of the fence lines that aren't being used anymore so that's a big thing to have fun it's a it's a good weekend it's a it's one of those where you feel it a little bit when you get home the next day <laughs> yep for sure and uh volunteers i mean that's essential um volunteers come and, and make it a family event and how that impacts their family too so i think that's like a reoccurring thing of yeah how all organizations are, are ran or through their volunteers and and i know on some years i've seen pictures where you got 20, 30 volunteers there, and it looks like you got kids that are five, six years old to, you know, a great, great grandpa there yeah. and grandma, and they're in the back and they're eating good. So talk yeah. about just the the fellowship and, and the, the reward that comes from bringing a family environment like that through volunteers. Yeah, I think conservation in itself is a fellowship in its own way, because, I mean, if you think about when I was a youngster and we used to go to the deer camps, we'd have 50 family members in my deer camp. To me, that was the most fun I could ever have in my life. I mean, I look forward to running around with my cousins and throwing rocks at stuff and chasing lizards down. And, you know, you start to get this love of having family. And I think we're really kind of getting away from that in some ways when they decided to go to the draw system. And you only have X amount of people put on your uh, application now you lost that family pod thing. And I think with the conservation side of things, you kind of gain some of that family pod back. And a lot of guys and gals will talk to me about this. So how's that work? I go, you know, you come up, the kids are having fun. They, they look forward to that. So, you know, they tell you, you know, when are we going to do it? When's the next one? And you get more of that from the kids than you do the grownups, you know, you know, the kids that are like eight, nine, 10 years old, they, they really want to go do some more of that because they meet other kids and they get to do the same things that, that they'd like to do with them. And uh, family members and themselves, you can hear the laughter and you can hear the people talking. And, and it, you can just tell there's a, a release of tension when you're at one of these big things. And it's huge. I mean, if you sit back and you really listen, you can feel uh, you can feel the, the love of that outdoors thing. And they, I think we've lost some of that in some of the family members and family pod. And I think that's the huge thing we have to try to do to get back together on. And that's, again, getting together with other organizations um, you know, we all have families, and that's the cool part because then we all get together and have fun. Absolutely. That's what it's all about for sure. Yeah. 
Then uh, I'm going to go back a little bit, but you talked about having three water trucks. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I happened to see on social media that you lent out one of your water trucks to another organization, and he took it out way out west and was, yeah. was filling water way out there and had some issues with the, the truck breaking down. <laughs> he was still trying to get water loaded up. But yeah. you talked about uh, volunteers and how you, you share your resources, you know, what's better meant for the mule deer and things like that. So yeah. you want to kind of talk about how you've had a phone call, I think, from a, a gentleman that's not – he may be part of the organization, he may not be, I'm not really sure, but it was interesting that I, I saw bits and pieces that he came and borrowed a truck. Mm-hmm. It actually broke down, had some mechanical issues with it, but then he was out there and he continued to fill up a bunch of water tanks out in West Arizona where it's very dry. Yeah, it, actually it was like like a first, that was a maiden voyage for that water trailer and then, um, you know, it went out there and the guy using it, he tore it up, I always tell him that, but we always give each other a hard time. Uh, anybody knows a guy named Nixon on Broadhead Brotherhood. That's the guy that, uh, he's the guy that did it. And I, I always say it was his fault. He broke the trailer. But what happened was it was a brand new trailer. Uh, the guy that builds, builds my trailer, he actually didn't put the, the shaft together like it should and it popped on him. So when I got it back, it was a whole lot better than when I, when I gave it to the Ron. So it worked out pretty nice. Um, and the bottom line is that, uh, you know, he, he, you know, he wants to get water out there and it's a hard place to get water to. It's out by Alamo Lake. And uh, I should have said Broadhead Nation. I think. Yeah, yeah. He's gonna, we cut that. We'll cut that. Go back. Yeah, yeah. he'll get all mad at me. Yep. And, okay, we'll cut that last little piece. Then we'll start over. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, Ron took it out there and he filled up. I think he said in uh, three days. It took him three days to do as much as it would for almost two weeks that he would have to do that, and it, and it really worked out. And uh, all we're out by Alamo Lake. Some of that stuff gets kind of rough in there, but when it came back, it was in great shape and. I have no problem with Ron coming and getting them whatever he needs to if we're not using it. And if anybody wants to use these trailers, uh, get a hold of us. And, you know, I can't run them around all day long every day of my life, but, you know, we could always have somebody go. And everybody's got their pet water catchments. And I don't care if you put the water in your pet water catchment, it's still helping the wildlife in the area. So, yeah, these things are, they try, they cost us about 3500 bucks a piece when we buy them. Um, and I think in, in for, for the money, it's the way to go because, you know, we can do a lot better with water certain places. We actually had a guy come up at the 2223 camp with a water trader similar to ours that we used it for actually potable water and things like that, which is kind of nice. But uh, we, we had a huge truck, and we just couldn't we couldn't get it to work because it was too heavy once the water was filled in 2,000 gallons. So we sold it, and we ended up buying another water trailer up with that and some of the money on that. So it works out pretty well. So, yeah, we, we don't have a problem people taking our stuff out and just understand that we just want it back about the same way it was when we gave it out. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't return anything that uh, – return anything you borrow in better condition than when you got it. Yeah, that's what we try. That's just like the conservation part of life. We always tell the kids, make sure you leave the place better than when you've seen it when you came on board. And they usually in our camps we'll have kids walk out and say, hey, you know, make sure your trash is picked up and they understand what's going on with that. So, you know, everything should come back better than the way it was. Right. Yep, and I think that was kind of true. Like at the camp that I witnessed here last month is just all the kids. I mean, they were helping each other, serving each other, picking up the trash. Mm-hmm. Then uh, then all of a sudden it was like Saturday night came, the big dinner. Then you had the kids giveaway. Yeah. I thought that was pretty special that you made sure that every kid that was in camp got a gift. And there was actually some pretty incredible prizes yeah. just as a thank you. And, and it was kind of fun just watching the kids smiles and get all excited and they get the these raffle tickets. And, you know, just for showing up, they get this opportunity. You want to kind of talk about why that's important, why you give every kid that shows up at camp an opportunity to win a gift so well what i tell the kids when they're up there i i try to uh, let them know how important they are because a lot of times the little ones don't know how important they are they don't get the you know, you're an important thing and you got to understand in the future it's going to get 
you're going to be running this someday. And I always tell them that I'm getting older, so I want some of you to take over for us. Well, you know, they need to understand that they're just as important as the kids with the tags. So when we give away, you know, things that we give them, and I, I got to throw a thing out for Jenny Rigo. She's the one that donated the rifle to that camp, which she's always helping us out. She's a heck of a gal. And, um, and for those that you don't know, Jenny is the sportsman's warehouse manager out of Prescott, our man out of Flagstaff. Flagstaff, yeah. And she used to run the Phoenix store, and, and she's probably one of the the most, in my opinion, giving people as it comes to a outdoor company that runs a sporting goods store that basically parallels to all the different organizations making a difference. So. There's no two ways about that. She's the best there is. I mean, we've got some good ones out there. And also Christy up in uh, Sholo, she's just like Jenny. She helps us out a ton at Great. that sports and warehouse. But, you know, she gave us the rifle. Of course, all the kids want to buy the, get the rifle. But crazy part is the kid that took the first tag or the first raffle ticket, he picked the optics. You know, and I thought for sure he's going to get that rifle, but he got the optics. That's what he wanted. So it was cool to let them pick those things out. And it's fun to watch them pick things out because there could be something there that's 100 bucks, and they come up and buy a little knife that's $5 knife. It's like, well, you know, whatever you think's all right. But uh, what's so important to get all the kids involved is they need to be a part of that um, that camp. So when we get done with the big kid stuff, because, you know, the ones with the tags, gotta, they have their special drawings. And then the little ones have their special drawings after that. And so everybody gets something. And it was kind of cool because Mike up there with the water catchment, um, with the water trader, he gave us like, I don't know, 30 knives. So all the little kids had knives. I always tell parents, I said, please, you take the knives. Don't let them play with them just yet. Make sure, you know, and they all say, yeah, 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 whatever. But uh, everybody everybody gets something. So, you know, the, the thing everybody wants to believe in is winning, but I just want everybody to be a, a part of it. So making a part of it and they become a part of it. Now they're going to be bugging mom and dad to come back again next year. And that's going to continue that that set series. that foundation and the yeah, exactly. conservation bug and being outdoors. There's nothing like you said earlier. Nothing clears the mind than being in God's country. And even yeah. if you're not hunting, just camping and being out there yeah. and and taking pride in that um, in that <clears> event. <throat> and you're giving them that confidence from the get go. That's that's great to hear. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun watching their eyes sparkle. You know, I always tell people I'm I'm kind of selfish. I take kids out and I I see them shoot their first deer and. I see the excitement in their eyes and that tear in the side of their eyes, and I start feeling the same thing I did when I shot my first year with my dad standing next to me. So that all brings back that, you know, just over overcomes you at times, and you think, my gosh, man, I believe this. I, I, this is probably the best thing I've ever felt in my life is seeing this happen. That's you know, and the awesome. kids will get excited, and they have a blast. And a lot of times I'll just walk away, let dad and, and the son or the daughter do their thing or mom and the daughter and son do their thing, and, it's a special moment, so you just get away from them, let them do it. So, Yep, absolutely. And I think that was another thing that was pretty shocking and overwhelmed that sometimes we just take for granted as being in the camp is here MDO is basically, you know, a volunteer camp, you know, basically making a difference. Then you had all these other individuals who are really not part of an organization. They're just there to represent themselves, and they're bringing items and donating it and seeing the joy. So it was almost like it was like a domino effect of, of giving of all these different people wanting to do that. And as you talked about with Sportsman's Warehouse, then the gentleman with the knives, and I know there was another person that showed up, and he had these nice walking sticks that were mm -hmm. handcrafted and sanded, and they were from Ocotillo's, and he had a whole stack of them, and he was just rocking around hand to people. So it was kind of neat to see the domino effect of, of givingness through all these different individuals just being part of that camp. So. And Terry Klein, the rancher, she brings her – uh, fudge brownies and her cakes on Saturdays. And my gosh, I mean, I gain three pounds every time I look at them. <clears throat> but I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's really cool because those kids get to, to see a true Arizona rancher 
when she comes up there. She, you know, she didn't buy that place that was actually six generations, but um, they fought the Apache Indians when they took over that place up there. And that's some stories that you just can't believe. You need to sit down and talk to people like that. But she wants those kids to understand she's a good person. She tries to do her best too. So without Terry, I don't think that area we have that we go to would be anywhere as good as it is as far as deer goes or javelina goes. She's done water all over that place. So, you know, those are the kind of ranchers that you, you really love to deal with. I tell people, I mean, a long time ago when they dammed up all these rivers and, and uh, you know, creeks and everything else we had for the Roosevelt Lake and Apache Lake, that water went somewhere. Well, it's not there anymore. What about the ranchers going down the hand digging these mud, you know, pits that put water into? We wouldn't have wildlife in a lot of areas we have them in. And whether you like a rancher or don't like a rancher, the fact of the matter is that rancher is what kept us going all these years. And, uh, you know, don't be afraid to go up and knock on the door of a rancher and say, hey, do you mind if I hunt your place? Or go up there six months in, in advance and say, hey, I got a tag for this area. I'd love to come and help you work on your fence lines. You know, it, the, the thing that gets a rancher upset more than anything else is if somebody trashes their land. It's like if somebody walked into your home and decided to throw a bunch of paper and beer cans everywhere in your house. You wouldn't be happy about that. But, you know, get to them and get to know them. There's some of the best people in the world ranchers are. So that's what I tell people. If you really want to get, you know, to some nice spots to go hunting because you got to go through a ranch to get to it, get up there and start being a friend with a rancher. You know, and learn how to do some of the ranching stuff is kind of fun. You know, find out it's not easy work either. <laughs> yep, exactly. And I think that's what was impressed too. She was talking about her water pipeline that she has that she basically manages for cattle. And I mean, she yeah. always, as she was kind of laying out, that's this whole pipeline of water that she runs and, and the impacts of the wildlife that I think sometimes we forget that even though you see cattle and you see the ranchers, mm -hmm. they're actually impacting wildlife probably even more than they are their cattle. Well, the big thing is, is that they... Um, they rotate their pastures. So they'll have cattle in a pasture for six months and they'll take them out for 18 months. And all that time, the water's still going there for the wildlife. Some ranchers will shut the, wire, the water off, you know, and they'll walk away from it. And we try to work with those ranchers and tell them how important it is to keep the wildlife going, but sometimes it just doesn't work and we will not work with those ranchers. You know, if we help you with a water project, it has to be on 365 days a year and 24 seven, you know, don't shut it off. If you shut it off, then we no longer be a part of you and probably come and take our solar modules that we get from APS, which goes into the next thing is we have a big partner for the Arizona Public Service that they give us their uh, decommissioned solar modules and panels. And uh, there's probably a shoot 3,000 of them all over the state of Arizona right now that's pumping water in old windmills or, you know, other things to keep water going to it. And uh, we, we have a contract we give with those people and they have to promise to keep the water going, you know, all the time. You can't shut it off. So, it's a partners like that it helps a lot of the stuff out too. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? You guys partner with APS, the yeah. power company here, one of the biggest power companies here in Arizona, mm -hmm. and you guys get their decommissioned solar panels that are still obviously operable, mm -hmm. still have the ability to create that energy, and then you guys put those on the water catchments yes. in order to use it on a, a regular pump or a well. Yep. So what happens is a lot of the windmills are, are falling apart and, you know, we just don't have these old guys that know how to work on windmills anymore. So we use the windmill itself and we attach the solar modules to the windmills and we drop down a, a, a water pump down inside the well and it pumps water all the time. It pumps it all day long and shuts it off at night and then there's always water there for the, the critters and that stuff. There's there's some huge arrays that we built. We had one up on the Oaxaca Ranch that we use all of our solar modules on and uh, shoot, I think there was uh, 6,300 watt uh, 
the panels we put wow. on that thing. And it's pumping a huge water source in that thing that actually is going to continue the water there forever. Um, you know, we've done a lot of things all over the state. Uh, some of the solar modules we have up on the Cook's Mesa is what we use. But then there's the smaller ranchers. We have two, three of them. They just pump water areas like in the desert that this just can't get the water continu continually going out because of the windmills. So they put them on there to make it work, you know. Incredible. How else are you bringing awareness or how else can other organizations bring awareness to the needs of these animals? Well, I think, you know, we go back to the volunteer stuff again. And, you know, we have the banquets. We, we were fortunate enough that this year we actually had four banquets, you know. We ran from the COVID far enough that we could actually get some stuff done. So we generated some cash. But those people that show up to those banquets, you know, if they see what their money's going to, obviously they're more apt to give you money again the next year. And that's the first thing we do. We show folks, hey, look, this is what we use your money for in this region. Um, we tell people if they want to get more involved, obviously come on out. Anybody with a pair of boots and some gloves and a shovel can help us out in any way they can. And uh, understanding that the mule deer population is probably not doing as good as it should because it's they're the, they're the sissies of the deer family or the ungulate family. They just don't do well. They, um, they've been encroached on every which way you can think of by homes and different things and new freeways and things like that coming up. Um, they get uh, they're, they're pressured from the elk that's coming further and further south, you know, in some of the areas that the habitat the mule deer live in. Um, Whitetail, the little even the little whitetails will chase a mule deer buck off. You know, it's just, it's funny to watch a big old 180 inch mule deer get chased away by an 85 inch whitetail because he's a chicken. You know, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but I mean they just they just don't do well. I mean they're the ones that are the probably the weakest of the group, and um, anything we can do to keep their encroachment from happening, I think, will help more than anything else. Um, but we all know that money talks and unfortunately some of the best places for mule deer is the places out by new river, um, up into those areas. Luckily it's gone about as far as it can go in the new river area. Cause you're right up against the national forest. Uh, hopefully, uh, and I pray about this is that we never allow the national forest to be sold off. If we do that. Then we might as well forget about mule deer. And I don't think they'll do well at all after that. Um, Obviously, the feed, you know, they just don't have enough feed going on right now. It's not, and the drought's been so bad for the last 20-something years that, you know, we we just don't do like we used to do. In the 80s, if you can remember in the 80s, and you guys were probably too young to, to hunt those years, but, I mean, I could go out and see 150 mule deer after the big rains that we had in the 80s. It was crazy. I mean, they exploded. Hmm. And you can tell as soon as the rains hit, you know, that the fawns came out because the does were able to, carry them full term they were healthy enough to you know not ingest them or to um, you know abort them and that's exactly what they do we get stressed they get stressed out from atv riders going up and down washes all the time they get stressed out and let's take 20b for instance that place never stops i mean we have uh atv trails uv utv trails and i think everybody should recreate and have fun um but there are certain washes that these deer like to bed up in because they're cooler in the middle of the day and that's where these does will go and the bucks will grow their antlers a lot of people don't realize that a buck growing antlers it puts a lot of stress on him too but um there's just no no way to get rid of i mean go to the kaibab of the strip you'll see a lot of deer up there there's not a lot of people running around up there right um strip bucks they'll lay there and they'll go to sleep they'll get up and get a drink they'll go eat they go lay down go to sleep and there's nothing there to pressure them um down here around the phoenix area these guys get pressured every day of their life and you know there's really no way of stopping it but it would be cool to see a moratorium put on where people can't be running the utvs up and down washes and things I'm, i mean there's plenty of trails of that without having to do that and i'm not i'm probably going to get eggs thrown at me for saying that but the bottom line is that it, it does affect them a lot so um there's really no way of stopping it 
what is the the biggest threat? Kind of piggybacking on that, what's the biggest threat that mule deer are facing right now? Encroachment. Encroachment is the number one thing by all, by everything. Uh, people are going to tell you it's predators, but encroachment is probably the worst. I mean, the more they build up into the hills and the foothills, is where the, your mule deer like to hang out. Um, they push them further into the mountains and things that, you know, that maybe they just aren't used to, or maybe they don't know where the water sources are, or maybe they can't eat the same kind of foods. I'm not a biologist, but I know it affects them pretty badly. And then our second probably is going to be predators. Um, you know, the coyote population is huge right now. Um, Game and Fish decided that, you know, go with the state of Arizona and stop having, um, you know, the, the tournaments and things like that, which I feel like it was more optics than anything else. Um, we have a lot of things going on with the, with the mountain lion things. They've changed the way the seasons work on mountain lions. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of, a lot of critters out there that eat, they, they eat fawns and that's just how it works. And, um, I don't know. I you know Utah was for many years was giving five dollars per coyote ear, you know, for a set of years, and it kind of sounds barbaric. But at the same time, they realized how many were getting taken out, and their you know mule deer population exploded. But at the same time, they have a lot of private property, and a lot of times, you know, the private property grows more deer. So the cool part is we have like eighty-seven or something percent public land. The bad part is we have eighty-seven percent public land. So the deer don't really ever get a chance to, to take care of business. And most ranchers take care of the predators, you know, better than anybody else. So, you know, I guess what I would say is if 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 you like to see your wildlife grow, um, go out every weekend and do some target practicing with coyotes, you know. That kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, building those relationships with ranchers. If you went and knocked on their door and asked to hunt that in a in a future time when you have a tag or or next year when you perceive to have that tag not only would it help them to help them with their fences or whatnot you may even be able to approach can i do some predator control because it's going to have an effect on their calves or whatever uh livestock that they have right Is yes. that, have you seen that as well oh yeah they in fact they encourage you to come on their place and in uh, hunting the predators and things like that and then it's if they get a bad, get a mountain lion that's killing calves, obviously they hire a um, professional guy. He comes in and takes care of business. But, um, you know, they did a really cool study with the gaming fish department with uh, one of their guys that does nothing but lion stuff. And they find out which things that lions eat. Um, and, you know, they like their mule deer. They like deer, you know. But they also, there's some of them that actually eat donkeys. There's also some of them wow. like javelina. A couple of them like nothing but coyotes, so they ate a lot of coyotes. And I just asked them, is there any way we can kind of do the DNA thing and keep that stuff going? But, you know, I got a chuckle out of it. But at the same time, it's, uh, you know, there's there's mountain lions that eat the crud out of deer. And then there's other lions that don't touch a deer. It's just a weird deal. Even if there's deer in that lion's home range, they're targeting or they've picked out another prey species that yeah that, that's easier for them to go after them they have a taste for coyotes or they have a taste for javelina or you know the the big thing they like these bighorn sheep but they don't last long after they eat bighorn sheep because they take they track them and kill them but um yeah they have their own they only have their own desire for certain types of animals which is really crazy but interesting and and you talked a little bit about the the gray wolves you know up there you know the mexican wolves and, um, you know, if you talk to the locals, they'll say that there's the deer population has dropped quite a bit. But if you look at the uh, statistics and stuff, it doesn't really seem like it affect the mule deer herds too much. If you look in the biological part of it, um, they, they kill more elk than they do calf elk than they do the mule deer. And if you kill more elk, we actually, it benefits mule deer. And I'm not saying that we got to get rid of our elk because I love elk too, but um, the elk population probably hurt us more than anything else in the long term. Um 
you know, the elk weren't here until the early 1900s. And when the fellow up, I think he was out of Winslow, brought in, I think, 30 or 40 head of, of uh, Rocky Mountain elk. And he got tired of them and let them go. And that's what we have now. So before that, we had Miriam elk up in the White Mountains. And uh, they were cool-looking creatures. I've seen some pictures of those before. And they say they were all wiped out. But it's harder to believe that anybody think they were wiped out in that some of that stuff in the blue wilderness and that kind of crazy but you know that area there was the elk were there and the mule deer were there and the whitetail were there you know but if you read some of the books back from some of the early um, um, guys that came across with the army biologists and whatnot scientists we had all kinds of different kind of critters in different areas that you know we we don't ever see now san francisco peak had grizzly bear bighorn sheep were everywhere uh turkeys were 150 to 200 in a flock you know but everything changed there wasn't one mention of an elk in there at all so wow but there was plenty mention of mule deer but so you know if you look in the past and you said elk are great because they um they generate a revenue for the gaming fish which is huge because without that they couldn't do the thing good things that they do and then people like to eat them but uh, at the same time they do they eat a whole lot more than deer they reach higher they eat more they drink more you know it's like it's just uh, there's a huge competition with that right now can you talk about the Merriam's elk? A lot of people don't know that that's a subspecies that, um, like you said, a lot of people think is extinct, but it was native to Arizona, correct? Yeah, it sure was. It's uh, mostly in the Unit 27 and Unit 1. Yeah, much in the Blue Ridge, the Blue uh, Wilderness area had quite a few of them. And they had, uh, from what I understand, pretty cool-looking racks. They had uh, kind of like the Roosevelt elk. They had plenty of stickers off of them. And they were a big-bodied elk, from what I understand there, too. But uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was 19, I'm going to take a guess here, but I think it was 1950s that they felt like the last one was ever uh, harvested and killed up in the White Mountains. But I just feel like this, I've seen some bulls up there that look a whole lot like a Miriam elk. <laughs> Still <laughs> but, have those genetics. Yeah, it's hard to tell, you know, but... I just uh, I think there's lots of things in this in the state that we've had that's gone away. The, the grizzly bear's gone away. The the, the Mexican wolves gone away, um, and that's because they didn't do well. Black bears are still here, and coyotes are still here. You know, to me, it's like, do we want to reintroduce all this stuff and causes more chaos? The you know the ranchers and the wildlife and things like that. So there's all kinds of questions you have to ask about that stuff. With all that, our our mule deer. Are they on the decline, or are they staying the same? I think they're on a decline. I just that's just from me, uh, from places I've been and looked at, and I've talked to a lot of wildlife managers out there. That a lot of times they'll go to the commission and they'll say we'd like to drop tags, and you know they're declining, and sometimes the tags don't get dropped. You know, so these things that you know that, that they've gone to school and they've studied hard to understand how to keep things healthy and things like that. There's a guy named Todd Buck that was on the Kaibab. He was a wildlife manager. That man knew exactly what he was doing up there to try, try to get the older age class bucks and more deer and understood that they, we'd grow too many deer, that we'd have a crash if we had a bad winter and things like that. And these youngest, I, I think I have nothing. I'm not knocking some of the older wildlife managers. Some of the, the newer ones, like the last five, six years and earlier, they have a real desire to try to figure things out. And they're fun to talk to and understand what's going on. But uh, I think if you talk to any of those guys on the ground, they'll tell you that mule deer population is going down. And I think everybody needs to to take heed on that advice that um, maybe we do need to lower tags. No one wants to hear that, but if we want to be able to have future generations to see these animals and to hunt hunt them in future generations, then 
you know, if you knocked it down, if you're listening to the boots on the ground and they know it better than anybody, mm-hmm. like you're talking about all those camps that you have and you're having wildlife managers at each of those camps, um, you know, we've seen success with other animals when they've taken 50 to 100 tags off of a certain season and then brought it back. And when, when the animals are able to adapt and overcome, then you increase them back up and listen to those managers. We don't have, like Montana and, and Colorado, we don't have the winter kill because it doesn't get that cold, but we're mm-hmm. seeing the drought and we're seeing, you know, unofficial term of kind of like a summer kill in the sense that you're losing water, which goes back to some of our previous talks about the catchments. But when they're having droughts and you're seeing animals that should be really, you know, healthy and you're seeing their ribs uh, when you're doing your scouting, obviously that's a problem. Well, then if you factor in all these fires we had too, I mean, we lost thousands and thousands and thousands of habitat, you know, of uh, miles of it, you know, and it's going to have a, a definite impact on that particular unit. Um, every time you have one of these fires, you, you lose animals in it. They just don't have any place to go. It burns all these catchments up. Any pipeline that's been built in there that's gone now. So, you know, you have to really look hard at that stuff. And I think the wildlife managers do a really good job of seeing that and understanding and factoring that in. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's a it's a huge complex thing that they have to figure out. I uh, I just feel like in the long run that we have to be able to give up this opportunity thing that we apparently all voted for to the game of fish to say we need more tags to have more times to hunt. And start looking at more as the uh, quality of hunts, and maybe not the whole state, but maybe start breaking it up in you know sections where this is opportunity, and this is you know your quality stuff. So because the quality is going to make more deer live longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I'm not a biologist, but just thinking and seeing how it would work, I seem like if we start studying on some of these, they they call some of these units. Um, I think it's the opportunity, or well, I can't remember what they call it, but that was for older age class bucks in it, and uh, they've it's worked i mean you'll see more younger bucks live longer um you can't get a big five by five if you shoot a two point you know spikes on the other hand i guess there's you know you can whack one of them because they're supposed to be two points when they're their first year so the genetics aren't quite there but uh at the same time i've with a big discussion on on one of the facebook pages i i don't say a whole lot on some of them but i wanted to read this one and it was basically you know, Game and Fish does a poor job. It has to do a better job of managing our mule deer. I don't think they're doing a poor job of doing managing our mule deer. The next thing out of their mouth is we need to shoot does. You know, and it's like, guys, you can't shoot the baby makers. Or you're not going to have those deer anymore. Exactly. You know, well, we've seen 100 does and only seen two bucks. Well, you know, that's that's good. Those two bucks are going to breed those 100 does like it's nothing. So, you know, we need to have the does there. What we need is we need feed on the ground and water in the tanks and things like that to help these things uh, grow and uh, be healthier you know these bucks they're not they're not like those they for some reason does have kind of figured out they're not going to get shot you know they get together and they hang out and those bucks go down on the bottom of the canyon or they stay they stay up at night and go to bed as soon as the sun comes up you know they figured out how to get away from hunters so i always tell people be a better hunter you know don't blame the system if you can't find your animals out there that is true great point i think we've all experienced that (laughs) Um, tell us about kind of wrapping things up. Tell us about your favorite hunting adventure. A lot of guys think like what you were saying, being with a kid, we've, we've all, um, depending on where you're at in your hunting career, if you started late or if you started early, if you started with your dad or an uncle or grandpa, but some guys, as they get older, the best memories they have are now taking out their children or was it, was it some 
kaibab or strip or some giant buck that you harvested if you want to elaborate well i've never killed a giant buck so i've shot a 155 class buck and that was the first year i shot that's the biggest one i ever shot so you know it's like it's, you just kind of you can hunt all your life in in desert areas and hope to see something bigger and i've missed some monsters with my bows that i sh probably should have shot but uh, that's what's so fun about hunting but i think my my favorite adventures and there's a couple of them is no, eight years old my dad's got me in his back pocket my hand in his back pocket dragging me through canyons and you know we're hunting with a 30 30 and you know he's six four and a half and here i'm a pipsqueak trying to keep up with them legs and it's like craziness but i loved every second of it it was the greatest thing in the world um and secondly probably my daughter when she turned i think she was 12 she had a 17 b tag and we drove in to the spot where we seen some deer and uh we got out and we sat there for a second and two looked like twin two points come walking out and I told her, I said, okay, Chris, pick one. And she shoots and right through the old boiler maker, and he walks around in half a circle and falls over dead. And she looks at me, she says, Daddy, take my gun. I said, what's the matter? She goes, I don't feel my legs. And she fell on the ground. I grabbed her gun, she fell on the ground. You know, those are the kind of things that you remember all your life. I mean, and, and that was cool to see her get that excited. And it wasn't that she, I think she felt bad about shooting something. It was actually she got that excited about something. And to see that passion in her eyes. And my older daughter, she's a she's a great great person a sweetheart of a girl but she doesn't kill anything she won't kill anything but the youngest one man i don't want to get her mad at me she can shoot but uh and she killed elk she's killed javelini she's killed mule deer um but yeah it was fun to see that and my grandboys now when i take caleb out last year we had him on three or four bucks and you know he got so excited but to his He's seen a buck. I know the buck was the buck because he was bedded up in the bush and i told him that's the buck right there he said poppy says I don't see the head. I don't want to shoot. I said, that's a good call. He says, I said, maybe he'll just stand up. Hang on a second. And that buck didn't stand up. He jumped up and it was like Mach 5 coming out of there. So he says, what What happened? I said, he figured it out. But uh, all yeah. those things are cool things. And then obviously my favorite hunt I've ever been on was with Dave King. And we I was lucky enough to get it on for, actually I won a tag over at the uh, convention over in the expo for a Shirus Moose. And uh, Dave and I went in there and knew nothing about Shire's moose, knew nothing about where we were going other than where we know we had to hunt and glassed up a really cool looking moose. And he was like way over there. And uh, so Dave and I hauled butt over there and didn't find him. And then actually ended up finding him and shooting him at about 15 feet. And uh, then the fun was on. And we first pack out obvious 90 pounds of meat in your pack, trying to get that big guy out of there and going over deadfalls and all this other stuff. We get to the bottom of the, this hill and this the old guy and the horse goes, you know, there's a horse trail that goes right up there where you shot that moose. <laughs> now you tell us. So, <laughs> and was that in Utah then? It was in Utah, yeah. It was a cool hunt. It was a life, lifetime adventure hunt for me. That was a blast. But having good friends on hunts like that, that that's got your back. And, I mean, we packed meat for, shoot, six hours. And it was like, finally got done. We just collapsed. And I had to have Dave back at the airport like three hours after we down the last chunk of meat so we crashed for an hour and a half got up and i hauled him back to salt lake and got him on the airport and that was it but you know all those things are just memories that uh you just can't you can't read those in a book you know you can't see them on the tv you know you got to get out there and get after it to see that stuff so it's fun yeah, absolutely so we we sure appreciate this time uh coming down and uh, the work that you do so how can uh, people get involved and how can they contact you and, and uh, start to partner with you or make donations to your organization sure. or, or get involved in your banquets or come out and volunteer on a water hole or fence removal? Well, you know, what you can do, the easiest way to do is call me, 623-696-5579. If I don't answer the phone, leave me a message. I'll get back to you. Uh, or get a hold of me on uh, on my uh, email at terry at uh, azmuledeer.org. 
Um, you can see us on Facebook. There's on Mildor, and each region has their own, actually. So if you're in Prescott, you go to Region 3. If you're in Tucson, it's Region 5. Um, or you can go to my regular Facebook page. I'm, I don't know how long I'm going to be on Facebook. I'm kind of fed up with Facebook, but um, getting ready to say adios. Um, but you can find me there. If not, I'll make sure everybody knows where they can find me at, and it's super easy to find me. So look me up. We'll be uh, we'll be happy to have you. We have some hopefully some banquets in, uh, next year with – you know, the, with the Corona thing or the COVID thing we got going on, who knows what's going to happen next year. So we'll probably be asking everybody to help us with the raffles. We also do raffles for the uh, Lorraine Klein Memorial Fund, which is our uh, physical partner. And the bad thing about being a new uh, organization, and, and Mike and you all obviously know about it, is it takes five years for you to be able to do raffles, which I think is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life, to be a nonprofit organization and not be able to um, generate funds. And I'm not sure how we can do it, get it together and try to fight that and take that out. But that would be nice. Um, but I was fortunate enough to have Lorraine Klein, which is uh, Terry Klein's uh, mom. They do the memorial for her. So we do a physical partnership for them. So we'll do some raffles on there as Lorraine Klein Memorial Fund. And uh, you'll look for that and we'll have that going on too. But that'll help us out a lot. Absolutely. No, it's a great way. And also if in the general hunting regs, so if you have any interest in any of the youth tags, they're all in the hunting regs. So just look at the Arizona Game and Fish Department hunting regs, look under all your mentored camps, and you'll see all of the great work that they do there. So Yeah, it's a, it's a really good program and, and something that everybody should get involved with. Um, find a find an organization you like, help them as much as you can. Um, we're all kind of the same family, even though we butt heads sometimes with each other, we're still out there for the same reasons. And make sure you look at whoever you're giving your money to. Make sure you see what the things are doing out there on the ground. If you're giving your money to an organization and you're not seeing anything done, then you probably shouldn't put your money to that organization in your state. Make sure you spend your money where you know your money's going to go. And uh, I know that probably makes some people mad, but I don't care. Yep. No, <laughs> that is true. I mean, I mean, it, the track record is is what you look at, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, making a difference. So thank you, sir. I you're really welcome. appreciate the time. So. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Terry. Yep. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Christian Hunters of America podcast. If you have any prayer requests or you require any information, Please look us up on ChristianHuntersOfAmerica.org or you can reach us on Facebook or Instagram under Christian Hunters of America.